0: post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: The Whitechapel murders occurred during a perfect storm of immigration, education, and the birth of tabloid news no longer the domain of the elite. Newspapers thrived and died by its salacious tales in easily digestible nuggets to feed the feverish hunger of the semi-literate masses of the working classes. The mysterious slaughter of fallen women by a sadistic so-called moral guardian was the perfect story. Serialized over several weeks and syndicated across the world, with growing gore and depravity, the crimes of Jack the Ripper grabbed the headlines for weeks and our attention for the next century. Revelling in exploitative prose, crude sketches of ripped whores, and each wound emblazoned in bold, the penny papers cared not a whit about the victims or the accuracy of its words, as all that mattered was the sale of the papers and the lifespan of the story, as the mystery over the murderer remained. By the 1930s, newspapers were no longer society's sole source of information and entertainment. As owing to an explosion of cinema, theatre, radio and television on the cusp of broadcasting, the public had their fill of murder with some killers becoming household names and others consigned to the side columns. As with the Blackout Ripper, the Soho Strangler was a mysterious series of killings, which caused terror in Soho's red light district, as a sadist stalked four unnervingly similar women across neighbouring streets, leaving no witnesses. No clues, no motive, and no hint to his identity. Having selected his victim, he would choose his method, his moment, and having murdered in silence, he would vanish without a trace. Not one for ego. He didn't kill for money, for fame, for sex, or even anger. As this killer spun the public a sinister mystery in the murder of French Fifi, which was mistaken for a suicide. Told for the very first time, this is the true story of Britain's long-forgotten serial killer, the Soho Strangler. Five months since the death of French Fifi, this sad tale of one of life's unloved was almost forgotten. Life went on, and with the inquest closed and her body buried, all that remained was her name. Two streets north of Archer Street stood Lexington Street, a thin cobblestone thoroughfare between the busy markets of Broadwick Street and Brewer Street, flanked by British pubs and continental cafes. Lined with four-storey terraces, the ground floors were occupied by small shops, such as butchers, bakers or pawnbrokers, and accessed by street doors and ascended by communal staircases. Each floor was often sublet into lodgings for short-term tenants. And trades like tailors, cobblers, and dressmakers. On Thursday the 16th of April, 1936, at 8.45 p.m. Having finished his shift as a pastry chef at San Marco restaurant, 18-year-old Remo Lanza arrived home. With dusk set, and this desolate street lit only by two lamps on opposing corners, 47 Lexington Street was in near darkness. On the ground floor, a Jewish barber's was shut. On the first floor, the German seamstress was away. At the top floor, a sewing machine thrummed, as Italian tailor Mr. Gibelli worked late and in the second-floor front flat, Dorothy Neary, a British-born prostitute, was out. Through the unlocked street door, Remo ascended the silent staircase to the second floor, where the two back rooms, a bedroom and a kitchen, were shared by Remo, his father Carlo, and his stepmother-to-be, a 43-year-old French cleaner called Jean-Marie Cotton. Who he affectionately called Auntie. With a tiny flat, only accessible by a single door to the kitchen. Remo would state, I found the door was locked. There were three keys, of which they each had one, but hers was missing. Remo assumed his auntie wasn't in, which was odd. As there was no light on only a little from the kitchen window. With the gaslight off and a cloth over the window's lower half to provide a little privacy from the neighbours behind, the kitchen was dark. He called out, "'Auntie!' but got no reply. With a shilling still in the meter, he lit the gas lamp and spite that the room was spotlessly clean, with dusters on the side, a bucket of soapy water, and a pile of folded linen fresh from the clothes horse. It looked as it had when he had left that morning only two details stood out as a wooden chair had been knocked onto its side and lying face down on the floor all silent and still was Auntie. I said, aren't you going to get up? But she did not answer. As a sickly woman prone to nerves and bouts of depression. It didn't strike him as strange. So he corrected the chair and entered the bedroom. There was no one there, not an object out of place, and there was nothing to suggest any wrongdoing. As he re-entered the kitchen, Remo knew that something was wrong. I could see that auntie's hands were red and blue, and when I touched them, they felt cold. With no obvious signs of a robbery, an assault, nor a struggle, it seemed as if an exhausted woman had collapsed and died in the midst of her chores. The death of Marie Cotton would be as unremarkable as it was forgotten. And yet, unbeknownst to the world, the Soho Strangler had struck again. It could be a coincidence, but there are unnerving similarities between Marie Cotton and French Fifi. Jean Marie Cotton was born on the 30th of December 1892 in Saint Brière, a city in the Côte d'Amour region of Brittany in northwest France. Little is known of her upbringing, except that as a young girl, she was raised in Paris under the shadow of the newly built Eiffel Tower. With a press prone to demonise any victim, who didn't match up to the moral ideals of the decade, as if being unworthy of living, for their death was fated. Marie, as she was known, was branded the divisor of her own demise before her body was even cold. Listed in newspapers as French, Unmarried and Bohemian, none of which was a social plus in 1930s Britain, they referenced her aliases as if she was a criminal. Many listed her differently. Marie Cotton, also known as Jeanette Cousins, or Mrs Lanza, alias Jean-Marie Cousins, whereas none were sinister, with all being due to honest changes in her circumstance. Jean-Marie Cotton was her birth name, In Britain, she had adopted the anglicised version of Jeanette to blend in. She married a man called Cousins and took his surname, and to hide the fact that she later lived in sin with an Italian cook. Until they could marry, this widow was known locally as Mrs Lanza. Like French Fifi, who she had neither met nor known, Marie was an early 40s French brunette, equally as short, being barely five foot one. And although sickly, she was physically sturdy and solid. In 1920, the same year that Fifi and Henry's six-month marriage ended, 28-year-old Marie came to the UK. And on the 2nd of January 1924, in Dartford, She married 47-year-old British citizen, Lewis Cousins. It lasted for just 14 months. She was granted British citizenship and a passport. And even after his death in 1929, she rarely spoke of him. It is uncertain if this was misplaced love or a marriage of convenience. Like Fifi, she was a quiet woman with few friends. She kept to herself, and she rarely drank. Although intensely private, she would later open up to Dorothy, her lodger, who would state, Jeanette was a very unhappy woman, and always complaining about her treatment by other people. She was frequently depressed, and on many occasions, she had said to me, that she would be better off dead than alive. On a superficial level, both women were very similar. But that is where the similarities would end. Some newspapers have mistakenly called her French Marie, as if to imply a link to the sex trade based on her gender and nationality, but she had no criminal record, and in the police report, she is described as a woman of good character. There is no evidence that she had at any time been a prostitute. Marie Cotton was an ordinary woman living an unremarkable life. But what attracted the Soho Strangler to her. Recently widowed By August 1930 Marie was an out-of-work waitress struggling to afford a cramped lodging on Shazbury Avenue where she met Carlo Lanza an Italian cook at the Florence restaurant on Rupert Street in what could easily be seen as a whirlwind romance, as much as it was a necessity for the poor. After four weeks, they moved in together to a room at 14 Old Compton Street in Soho. Working long shifts. In January 1931, they moved into a three-roomed flat at 47 Lexington Street, with Remo, fresh from Italy, sleeping on a bunk in the kitchen, as the front room was sublet to lodgers. Carlo would state, We got on well. But with money tight, the short fuse of this fiery little chef was prone to snap. Statements vary. Remo said, They quarreled sometimes, but nothing serious. Dorothy said, They didn't get on well having frequent arguments in a language she didn't understand. And yet Josephine Poulacan, a friend of Marie's, would confess, they were always fighting. I have often seen Madame Cotton with bruises and black eyes. I knew she was afraid to leave Lanza, as being riddled with jealousy. He had threatened to kill her if she ever left him for another man. Like Fifi, as a woman eager to be loved and finding none at home, Marie's eyes wandered. Dorothy would state, she used to speak of her sweetheart, an Italian chef from Peter Street called Dentis, who she loved and kept his photo in her purse. But having loaned him money, her lover had long since fled. With no family, few friends, and no savings, Marie was a lone woman stuck in an abusive relationship. Josephine stated, Lanza never gave her money except when he had sex with her. She used to complain about him being lustful. He frequently wakened her up in the middle of the night, When she refused, he accused her of having a ponce. Only Madame Cotton was not a prostitute. She was too ill to be a prostitute and too poorly dressed. With no police reports to back this up, and Marie deceased, it's impossible to verify where the truth stops and the lies begin. As every witness has a vested interest to make the statements that they make. Just like 3-4 Archer Street, 47 Lexington Street was a busy little thoroughfare where any stranger could pass unnoticed. Being badly lit and riddled with a rabbit's warren of side streets to scuttle down, alleys to escape unseen and doorways which sink into the darkness Soho can be a haven for the anonymous with the street door off a bustling pavement and open all day till the workers left anyone could nip in unnoticed ascend the unlit stairs and silently enter a lodging to do their dirty deed in private only those who knew Marie would state when she was in her flat she never locked the door 47 Lexington Street was where Marie felt safe with a busy barber's below tradespeople about all day and her lodger on the other side of a petition wall Unlike silence, noise can be reassuring. But living in a city where screams go unheard, the sound of the dying can be drowned out by the flurry of the living. On the 16th of November 1935, a new lodger moved in. Ruddy cheat and dressed like a dandy. 28-year-old James Allen Hall was a clerk at Denard Manufacturing in Margaret Street. Paying one pound and seven shillings a week, including the cleaning of the room and the washing of the bedsheets. He paid on time, he was no bother, and he didn't cause any friction between Carlo and Marie. As although handsome, James was gay sharing a bed with his boyfriend, 18-year-old Donald Ross. Being a moral woman, Marie didn't like the things that they did. But as she needed the money, she was fine with it, as long as they kept it to themselves. Sadly, owing to a minor squabble over a sold mattress, on the 30th of January 1936, James moved out. But that same day, Dorothy Neary moved in, meaning Marie didn't lose any income from the loss of rent. She liked Dorothy. They often chatted over a nice cuppa, and she trusted her enough to let her into her heart. As a 30-year-old single woman living apart from her husband, Dorothy claimed she was a kept woman by several men who adored her, being young, blonde and pretty. In truth, she was also a Soho prostitute who picked up punters in Hyde Park and brought them back to her room for discreet but silent sex. She disliked lying to Marie as her landlady was decent, later stating, Jeanette didn't lead an immoral life and she was not aware of how I got my living. So blessed with a partition wall three inches thick, when Dorothy invited her boyfriends over, she popped on the radio to lessen the noise. In her final weeks of life, Dorothy proved an invaluable companion to Marie. As although unaware of the Soho strangler, she was in fear for her life. On Thursday, the 9th of April, having been to Great Mobile Street Police Court to apply for a summons, Marie asked Dorothy to escort her to the Astoria Cinema on Charing Cross Road. She was frightened. She asked me to wait in the queue with her, as she was visibly shaken and terrified of a man who she knew from her unspoken past who was back. Dorothy confirmed, He is a Jew. I know him only as Mr. Cohen. We know nothing about Mr. Cohen. Who he was, where he lived, what he looked like, and as a quiet woman who rarely spoke about her fears, we have no idea what connected them, or why she was so scared. Dorothy said she called him my Jew man, stating he had once helped her out in the past, but now he was broke and was calling in debts, whether a few pounds, shillings or pence. Being afraid of Mr. Cohen's retribution, Dorothy would state, she asked me to stay in during the evenings for protection, and together they devised a code. If the Jew man came to see her, and she became frightened, she would drop something in the kitchen, and then I'd go in and see her. Jean-Marie Cotton was an enigma, an unremarkable woman with a mystery in her past. She was a moralist who let her room to prostitutes and homosexuals. A lady of no known criminality, who owed untold monies to a violent man, and seen as little more than an inoffensive little French brunette who worked part-time as a cleaner. Bafflingly, she was enduring stresses and threats on all sides of her life. But why? Was she hiding a secret, running from the truth, or was she spinning a lie? Thursday the 16th of April 1936 was as ordinary a day as most for the terrified Marie Cotton. At 7am she awoke and dressed in a mishmash of old clothes a red jumper a spotty blue dress a pink coat black shoes black stockings and while cleaning a floral overall and a silk handkerchief, which he wore as a headscarf. At 8am, Remo left for work at the San Marco restaurant in Mayfair, bidding her good morning, auntie. As at 9am, Carlo headed to his work as a cook for a full day's shift. Between 8am and 1pm, She cleaned the home of Mr. Prenter, a barrister at 12A Savile Row. She worked alone. She saw no one. She had no worries. And having let herself out, she arrived home at 1.15pm. According to Dorothy, at 1.20pm, she came into my room. She was complaining about the woman she was working for. Apart from that, she was quite normal. She mentioned nothing about the Jew. At 3.10pm, Carlo returned home as his lunch shift was over. As Marie was making the bed, I lit a fire in the kitchen. And as she sewed, he read the paper, discussing the raging war in Abyssinia. At 4.50pm, having shaved, he left, leaving the key inside of the locked door, and headed to his job, just off Archer Street. At 5pm, Dorothy and Marie had a chat and a cup of tea, in which Marie grumbled about Carlo's dirty ways. Marie continued cleaning the tidy kitchen and doing the laundry as Dorothy ran herself a bath. That was the last sighting of Marie Cotton alive. At 5.15pm, as habit, Dorothy popped on a wireless radio. I did this whilst I was washing myself and all the time my friend was in the room. That night, Dorothy had planned to see Brahman Alban, one of the several men who kept her, a phrase she used to disguise the fact that she was a prostitute. From 6.15pm, Brahman waited on the opposite side of Lexington Street, facing Dorothy's window. I waited for her to open the curtains, a sign that it was safe. And at 6.35pm, she ushered me up by the street door. They stayed in her room, making love with the radio on. And according to Dorothy, I heard no unusual noises nor did I hear anyone enter or leave the flat. In the police report, Brahman Alban of Bow was described as 35 years old, 5'4", clean-shaven, dark-haired, in a dark suit, a bowler hat, and a heavy overcoat. And firmly underlined... It states: “He is a Jew. At 7:30 pm, with the sex over, the radio off, and Brahman having departed, Dorothy went to Marie's door. I knocked. But I received no answer. I thought she was out. Only she wasn't. She was dead. At 9.30pm, Dr. V.F. Morcos of Dean Street certified her life as extinct. PCs Horner and Brown secured the scene. And with CID notified, Chief Inspector Sharp, Divisional Detective Inspector Burt, and police surgeon Dr. Charles Burney arrived. The same doctor who had attended the death of French Fifi. As before, the crime scene was assessed methodically. As the only entrance to the flat, the door showed no signs of a break-in It had been locked from the outside, and of the three keys, Marie's was found at the foot of the first flight of stairs. The gaslight was off, but with money in the meter, someone had extinguished the light before they had left. In the bedroom, only accessible via the kitchen, the wardrobes and drawers were untouched. Nothing was missing or disarranged and the police report stated everything appeared to be in order except there were two indentations on the side of the bed consistent with two persons having been seated and on the floor close to the bed was a quantity of cigarette ash. The kitchen was equally as orderly with a set of dusters a bucket of water and a pile of freshly clean clothes as marie may have left them found face down on the floor lay marie her time of death somewhere between 5:30 p.m. and 7:30 p.m. like french fifi there were no witnesses No fingerprints, and nothing to connect anyone with the crime. It was a brazen, motiveless assault in a well lit room with open curtains and neighbours nearby. Likewise, Marie's death was initially confused with a different motive. As with Fifi strangled by her own stocking, which was hidden by a jumper. Marie was strangled using her own scarf, but being tied with a less reliable granny knot rather than a half hitch, it had slipped up and over her chin. Unlike Fifi's, this crime scene had a hint of a struggle, as this time, an instantaneous death was less forthcoming, as her clothes were disarranged, but not sexually with her dress and apron rocked up and her knickers pulled down. The waistband had lost its elasticity as someone had sat astride her. With a bruise to her nose and her right eyebrow, she had been struck, but not being knocked unconscious. She had fallen to the floor, leaving a small pool of blood by her nose, which someone had tried to wipe up with her cause of death listed, as Fifi's was as death by ligature asphyxiation. This time, there was no confusion after the in-situ examination. Dr. Burney would state, She died of strangulation, and the scarf had not been tied by accident or by her own act, and therefore must have been tied by someone else. Backed up by a full autopsy, Dr. Burney would confirm that Marie Cotton had been murdered. The police would conduct a thorough investigation, but with no motive, no witnesses, very few clues, and only a handful of possible suspects but no one who stood out as undoubtedly her killer. Again they would conclude, the case is a complete mystery. And although there were connections between the two murders of two small French brunettes on neighbouring streets within a few months of each other, the police were hesitant to make such a bold leap without cold-hard facts. Whereas the press Were not. By the morning, the press had already stated the murder bears similarities to the death of another Soho woman, Mrs. Josephine Martin, known as French Fifi, who was found strangled with a silk stocking in her flat last November. Concluding the article, it has been suggested that they may be connected and although Chief Inspector Sharp would later rebuke, it has been stated in the press that the deceased was associated with French Fifi and other notorious undesirables of French origin and that she was murdered because she knew too much. There is not an atom of truth in the reports which are libelous and false in their entirety. But still, The theories had begun and soon a myth would be formed. Delayed for three months, the inquest into the murder of Marie Cotton brought forth from the shadows the police's prime suspect, a man with method and motive who had an overwhelming reason to kill. Until now, No one suspected that there was a serial killer in their midst. And having failed to piece together the clues, the Soho Strangler would remain just a whisper. Part 4 of the Soho Strangler continues next week.
1: And Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
2: Oh, that's a a long one to do. (coughs) Oh, dear Lord. That was a longer one than expected. Mmm. Oh oh dear lord oh each each time i write these I always go oh i'll try and make it i'll make this one a little bit shorter a little bit easier because all the other ones have been a bit bit longer than expected oh, there's just so much to say in all these cases oh so yeah it's just it's just i always try and cut it down a bit and then i go oh god I need to say that I need to say that I need to add that in oh dear lord anyway so, uh, oh, welcome to Extra Mile. Unscripted, unedited, blah, 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 blah. There we go. Take your little hat off. Let's double check that that was recording. I hope it was okay. Oh, because it's, like, oh, it's Saturday. I never normally record on a Saturday because everyone is walking the towpath and uh, taking their dogs out and having annoying phone conversations in front of the boat and moving their boat and oh it's just it makes it really difficult but I, do, I wanted to get it done today and it's afternoon as well and i try not to do it on a saturday afternoon but i am anyway so hope you enjoyed it it's, a, it's gonna be a bugger to edit but hopefully it'll be a good episode <sighs> shall i have a cup co- of tea i'm not gonna have a tea i'm gonna i'm gonna open up this big big old bottle of lime diet coke oh so if i get burpy now sorry about that hang on here we go yeah get in mmm. oh two liters four i'm gonna get over near this week i can't get the lid back on they've they've messed they've changed the way these these caps work now and they're really annoying you, you can't take them off fully they kind of half hold there they're really annoying change them back um so this week i'm going to do it properly i, I remembered i put a note to myself to re, uh, thank patreon subscribers i didn't put it on a different sheet so here we go thank you to Gillian. someone who calls themselves marco polo i doubt that's his real name uh, and cindy barrington so thank you Gillian. thank you marcus thank you cindy thank you very much for being patreon subscribers um lots of goodies uh in patreon for you to enjoy so i hope you're tr- trawling through those lots of Full episodes, uh, videos, uh, crime scene photos, things that I I don't share anywhere else. So uh, you get you get a script that goes with every single episode as well. Lots of goodies. So uh, and, and of course goodies that get sent in the post. What else is going on at the moment? Oh. Uh, if you're new to Extra Mile, don't forget we do a quiz in a bit. I give you some extra details about the case that may not have made it into the episode. Um, if you like Extra Mile, just to say if. Uh, in uh patron if you're i think you're it's seven dollars a month or more which works out as like four pounds in proper money per month you get walk with me which is where after i've edited the episode i take a i take a nice long walk and i tell you everything that uh, is in the episode that no one else will know so there's a handful of people who know all the secrets so if you like extra mile you will uh enjoy um walk with me especially when i go down doggers lane and i look at all the doggers there we go what else is going on um, ooh, burps. Ooh, more burps. Uh, uh, today is the eleventh uh, of February. By the time you get this, I'm powering through them at the moment. Um, just gone. Will it be my birthday? Happy birthday, Michael. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think I did anything big for it. I couldn't be asked with doing anything, anything. So I, I messaged a handful of friends. Just a handful. And I just said, let's get down the pub and have a couple of beers, which I'm doing tonight. So as soon as I finish this, I'm going, to, I'm going to Starbucks, and I'm meeting up with a mate, and we're going to have some beers. God damn it, I need it. So that's all that's going on, really. Uh, I, 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 oh, uh, Amy, if you're listening to this, uh, your little uh, Christmas cactus that you got me two years ago was doing really well. It had gone really big. And I, was, I was about to take send a picture to you. I put it outside to give it some sun, and then overnight we had a frost, and it killed half of it off. So I'm trying to recover it now, so... Yep the the lovely Christmas cactus, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, man, I was doing so well. I I, I I always kill things. I can't help it. I just shit at stuff. Oh, anyway, uh, let's do some quiz questions. We'll do the answers to these very shortly, and we'll dive into some extra stuff. So let's dive in. Uh, question number one. Don't forget, I haven't edited the episode yet, so I might balls it up. I might accidentally give the answer away. Ooh, burpy. Um, but don't worry about that. God, Coke really is burpy, isn't it? question number one what restaurant did Remo work at question number two what was the name of the Italian tailor on the top floor question number three what was Marie's husband's name question number four what was Marie's height question number five what street did they as in Marie and Carlo first move in together on that again not a well-written question on what street did marie and carlo first move in together there we go question number six what age was dorothy neary question number seven what was the name of dorothy's boyfriend inverted commas question number eight where did dorothy pick up her punters question number nine what police court did marie and dorothy go to prior to marie's death and question number 10 what cinema did marie need escorting to so we'll do the answer to those shortly and we'll dive into some extra stuff um i was going to do a big section at the start of this about oh why Jack the Ripper is at the at the start we mentioned about how it's kind of it's it's kind of a perfect storm for Jack the Ripper because it's it's uh, it's kind of uh, prior to this kind of newspapers had been the the remit of kind of the educated and uh, the elite whereas. Uh, things had started changing so um i was going to do a whole section on that but i decided not to so um early 1800s obviously there was a big tax it was the 4p tax that was on newspapers Uh, 1830s what they started doing was they changed it uh from a 4p tax to a 1p tax and because of that the circulation of newspapers really started to increase after 1936 um which is why we call uh, some of these uh, one penny papers because that's how much it would charge so uh circulation in england in a single year well in 1936 rose from 39 million to 122 million by 1854 so it's all changing uh, obviously we we've got the start of compulsory education it's not fully compulsory you could kind of opt out of especially if you've got girls unfortunately they would go well do you know we'll have the girl in education until she's nine but then because we've got younger children she has to look after them so that would go on so you've got Loads of people being educated, therefore newspapers realised um, what you need. What they needed to do was start aiming their newspapers towards uh, the working classes and people who weren't as educated, as they say. Uh, therefore, they needed newspapers which were. Uh, not as well written not as well researched but more sensational more something that would really grab the attention uh, jack the ripper happened around the time with the birth of tabloid news so you've you've got an unregulated news organization a, a about 10 year roughly around 10 years before jack the ripper happened also the first cable the the first uh, line was laid going from uh britain to america so that's that's why we have that's why when jack the ripper happened it was the first major incident where something would happen in london and that day it would be reported on in new york so it's kind of we we've got the start of uh, mass media uh, entertainment and things like that already kind of uh working classes were kind of um getting used to uh being able to go out and pick up things like charles dickens did a lot of work in this in the, the strand magazine uh that became very famous kind of mid to late uh or uh, well, mid 1800s uh george noon uh, this is around the early 1880s he uh published a penny magazine which would uh be known as titbits uh, uh, kind of a a sensationalist kind of magazine that was still around I, I remember it as a kid it was revised in kind of 1968 it had kind of interesting little stories it's one of those kind of magazines that you would pick up at the supermarket when you're passing and you go oh well that looks that looks like shite but I'll read it because it'll pass the time um and what that did was it, it kind of had uh uh kind of lower brow stories in there but it had illustrations which were really useful especially when you're trying to get across stories for people who aren't as literate but also made english may not be their first language and we got a real kind of increase in uh people from overseas as well so um also uh, with jack the ripper as well around this time you got the strand magazine really kicking off um um and uh Arthur Conan Doyle had recently r- released, so this was around the era of Sherlock Holmes as well, so there's a real massive true crime that's kind of erupting around this point. You've got Sherlock Holmes, you've got Strand Magazine, you've got Titbits. It's really kicking off at this point. So um, you can understand why something like Jack the Ripper would become the kind of thing that the, the um, tabloids would really dive into, because it's kind of it's sensational it's working class it's in a working class area it's involving working class people it's it's gory it's got it's got mystery and that's what's kind of carrying and that's why I'm doing the kind of correlation between the two of how they're so very different you've got two stories about murder of prostitutes within a small area within a small time frame by a single person one is incredibly famous and would become world renowned and the other would be forgotten like the like soho strangler is almost entirely unknown and we'll get into more of that as we go through um um and even though jack the ripper is more is more graphic it's very bloody and violent the soho strangler is, is an interesting correlation piece because it's very different it's 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 more low-key, it's very mysterious. There's no kind of going in and ripping out kidneys and wombs and all shit like that. It's, you know, he sneaks in, he sneaks in, He uh, he's unseen, leaves no clues. It's like, it's very subtle, it's very discreet. It's almost entirely different. But neither were caught. Uh, one became famous, the other became unknown. Same as mentioned at the start, Jack the Ripper, uh, Jack the Ripper, Blackout Ripper. I would say blackout ripper when you look at the evidence is more horrific than jack the ripper but one is massively famous and everyone knows about it and there's books written about it and documentaries and almost everyone in the world knows the name of jack the ripper blackout ripper unknown entirely unknown why it happened at the wrong time it happened during war people are people are too much to focus on jack the ripper time what there's not we're not at World War stage yet yeah, we're, we're five years away from World War. There's poverty, it, as mentioned. There's there's changes in the way people are thinking, that the way people are consuming. um by the time of Jack the Ripper, Yorkshire Yorkshire Ripper, my brain is fried today. By the time of uh, Blackout Ripper and the Soho Strangler. We've got cinema kicking off. Cinema's out there. We've got uh, everywhere. It's made for the masses. Uh, Television is about to kick off. I think BBC Radio had already been running. Uh, John Logie Baird, who's not really the inventor of television, but in Britain we like to believe that he's the inventor of television. It was a mechanical television, which which was uh, first exhibited or first... uh, yeah, first exhibited in front of people on 5th uh, Street uh, in Soho so there is a connection to television there um, but uh, television uh, f- first BBC broadcast, 2nd of November 1936 that was the first regular TV broadcast so, it, so it's about to kick off but people are consuming um, things in a very different way true crime is huge in the 1930s but people have such a choice by then so uh th- it it becomes a um, an exciting thing for people to absorb, but audiences have become more savvy. It's like it's like uh, one day I sat down with my grand, God bless her, and uh, to watch uh, the Sixth Sense, and uh, we watched it and we went, oh, what do you think, grand? She going, oh, it's very good. And then she turned around and she said, what happened? And I, I said, oh, well, the, the guy Bruce Willis character, he's just found out he's dead. And she went. No, all of it (laughs) she she liked him but she didn't understand a thing of it because she's used to the kind of i grew up on the films that she liked in the 1930s 1940s 1950s films and they're very simple there's like, if you watch the Sherlock Holmes films with Basil, Basil Rathbone, everything is signposted because it has to be. Whereas we've become more savvy as we kind of become more cinematically illiterate and we're used to storytelling and things like that. That they, they have Everything has to become more complicated to entertain us. Whereas back then, it had to be simple. Um, let's just see how long I've been waffling for Let's Right, let's dive into some details about Jean-Marie Cotton. Um, as mentioned uh, Jean-Marie Cotton uh, she's got multiple names through the press again with all the victims they all have multiple names not not because they want to be hidden away and mysterious, although some do. It's because it's, as as you expect with her, she wants to be known as Mrs Lanza because she needs to, even though she's, she's a widow at that point, she can't afford to remarry. But she's known as Mrs Lanza because she lives with a Mr Lanza and therefore morally it's kind of right for for her to go oh i'm mrs lanza and you know sometimes sometimes they would wear a brass ring on their finger as if they were married um to make it look like they were a man and wife because people were quite you know they didn't like the fact that people were living in sin whatever that means so um you know she 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 didn't have aliases as the press would put it but and we're going to dive into this a lot more in the kind of uh the next murder that we eventually get to um well, eventually get to we get to that in uh, part five um this is where we really look into how how they rip apart the victims and order portray to them to you how it's acceptable to say oh do you know it's fine that they've been murdered that's fine she was a prostitute she deserves to die this is actually where even though i before i did the podcast the, the soho strangler was a thread that i used to do on my walking tour um and when the walking door stopped stopped and i was about to write that book i started with the next murder which is dutch Lair, who we covered in episode four i think um but what i wanted to do was i really wanted to dig down to the ideas of uh how the press represented her um in all the newspapers because it's really fascinating how they kind how w- when you break down every single paragraph how it we'll go into it in part four but basically it's like they want you to not like her um they're also creating the idea of a mystery around who the who the murderer is and they're they're creating something that's entirely fictional whereas what they should be doing is telling the truth but they don't because the truth doesn't sell newspapers so, um, we'll be getting to that in part five and six, as well as uh bits in part seven and eight, nine and ten. Core, cool. this will kill me, it really will, but hopefully, it'll be worth it. Um, connections between Marie Jeanette Cotton and French Fifi, uh, both born in France, both born and uh, uh, w- within about a, about a year of each other, um, both lived and raised within not too far from the eiffel tower pretty much uh we don't believe that they actually know knew each other as far as we know there's nothing in the police report or the court records that states that they knew each other Um, although there probably wouldn't be because the police weren't really looking into the idea that they were connected by this point they'd as we'll get into the next episode they'd assessed whether there was a connection and they deemed as chief inspector sharp had said there was no connection but uh we don't really know much about her life though uh where she came from what she did her marriage uh who to her husband whose name i won't mention because that's a quiz question that was in dartford 2nd of january 1924 Um, they were only together about four months he died in dartford infirmary in autumn 1929 um he was english uh, she rarely spoke of him in fact carlo her boyfriend um he didn't know much about him he didn't know that he was dead that uh her husband was uh dead uh, he said he thought they separated four or five years ago, but didn't know that he'd carked it. Um, whether this was just a quick marriage, whether they, do you know, sometimes people go, "Oh, I love you, let's get married," especially in this kind of era where it's really important for a, a woman to find a man. Therefore, because technically a woman doesn't exist in that era unless she's got a man to kind of support her, and she can't she can't have her own bank account, she can't have her own house. You know, it's important for a woman to have a man with her um maybe she just went he's kind of nice i like him let's get together it didn't quite work out um she, don't forget she doesn't really speak that much english so uh maybe he was of french origin or maybe they just didn't maybe it's just a physical thing or maybe it was a marriage of convenience because she did a couple of years later it was 19, august 28 she got a passport uh she definitely returned to and from france a couple of times whether it was to see her mum her mum definitely still lived there or whether she had a reason to keep going back and forth boat going past the boat might shake a boat went past really fast earlier on and it shook the whole table and uh really annoying really annoying there you go, horrible engine, horrible shitty engine, um so yeah, she she went back and forth uh, via Dieppe many times, but we just don't know why there's not a lot in her, her past that we know, um autumn 1930 she met carlo uh, she'd been working as a cleaner and a waitress in various places including pinoli's uh, restaurant in uh christmas 1934 and barcelona on beak street beak street is the the uh street next to lexington street so she'd been local she'd lived in soho for at least five years that we know of uh time of her death she was working as a daily servant to mr nielsen printer a barrister at 12 a uh, savile row earning uh four pounds and 16 shillings a week uh which is not bad actually considering uh i worked out the uk average weekly wage was three pounds per week so she's earning good money um so although some people will be saying that uh oh maybe she was a prostitute it's, it, it doesn't make any sense she's earning good money she's making enough to cover their rent uh and yet they're still lodging they'll getting out of lodges as well do you know uh, maybe they're debts we don't know we don't know much about that uh oh bu, 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 bu. carlo uh was a, a, a italian uh he was uh, he had a british passport as well we don't know much about his past um i left out big chunks in there he was separated from his wife who still lived in italy they had two sons together one was remo um Uh, And the other was Bruno. Um, He, his wife and his children, they moved over to the UK, I think, in 1931. Um, But his wife didn't seem to like it. She went back to Italy and uh, it seems like they separated. Uh, We're not too sure why. There's big chunks in here that just don't make sense. Um, As mentioned, uh, Marie was a quiet woman. She had few friends. Uh, She didn't seem to have many men friends uh her closest friend was a mrs warwick who was a husband to the doorkeeper of the florence restaurant which is where carlo works um although she seemed to get on really well with dorothy neary who was the prostitute who lived in the front floor flat although it's interesting that she seems to be uh, a, a very moral woman but uh she seems to be okay with prostitutes using the front room um for work whether she knows that or not we don't know and uh homosexuals uh obviously james and his boyfriend ross uh in the front room as well so it's kind of an odd one really yeah there's a lot a lot that we're told but because uh marie is dead and she never really spoke to anyone. What, what this is the problem with witness statements is we have to get nuggets from different people. And as you can see at the start, when we're talking about her relationship with Carlo, there's a lot of conflict over whether they got on well, whether they had regular arguments like a regular couple, or whether the, it was a vicious relationship. Um, it's it's hard to pin stuff down. It really is. So you've you got to be kind of um, careful with how everything is presented uh i think that's it i don't want to go into too much because there's a lot a lot that we're going to cover next week um and i don't want to say any more about that because it's it makes for an interesting case um i think that's it we don't know much about mr Dintis, the um uh her lover um I think we'll dive into a bit of that next week as well. I think that's it. I don't want to say too much. Uh, let's do the quiz questions. There we go. And then I can get to Costa. Costa? Oh, I've changed brands. I've gone to um, Starbucks. Only because they have lots of plug sockets. They have plug sockets near every table, unlike Costa, where they have like two plug sockets. And you get there, and there's always some Belen sitting there at the table reading a book. And you're like, why are you sitting at a table reading a book when it's the only place that's got effing plug socket? And they're just sitting there going, I'm just reading my book. I'll be here for 14 hours. Oh, whereas Starbucks, their plug sockets at every table. So it's brilliant. Uh, OK, let's do the quiz question. That was really boring. Let's do the quiz questions. Right. Let's see how many of uh, them I cocked up. Question number one. What restaurant did Remo work at? It was called San Marco. Question number two, what was the name of the Italian tailor who lived on the top floor? It was Mr. Gibelli. Question number three, what was Marie's husband's name? It was uh, Louis Cousins. I may have balls that one up. Question number four, what was her height? It was five foot one, didn't balls that one up. So, same height as uh, French Fifi. Question number six. What street did Marie and Carlo first move in together? It was Old Compton Street. And Old Compton Street is uh, the... Never each other, we? West side of Old Compton Street. Uh, backs onto Brewer Street. And Archer Street is just one street down. Uh, and if you want to go to lexington street you got arch street then you go up to brewer street and then one street up there up um uh berwick street uh takes you to lexington street so they're, they're all really close to each other uh what the, oh question number six what age was dorothy neary she was 30 i remember being 30 oh Question number seven, what was the name of her boyfriend? It was Brahman Alban. That's Brahm Brahm. or it could be Braham. Oh, I, I think I've been pronouncing it in the episode as Brahman. Uh, I think it's Brahm, but uh, I'm not going to re-record that. I can't be asked. Uh, question number eight, where did Dorothy pick up her punters? Uh, that was Hyde Park. Hyde Park, because there was barracks there especially kind of pre-world war ii and post-world war ii um and and there still is there's there's high park barracks which is on the kensington side it would be a place where a lot of prostitutes would uh, hang out and pick up their punters uh, there's lots of woods there as well question number nine what police court did marie and dorothy go to prior to marie's death it was Great Marlborough Street, uh, which is the same police court where French Fifi received her final conviction for prostitution. And question number ten: What cinema did Marie need escorting to? It was the Astoria on Charing Cross Road, uh, which sadly is no longer there because they decided to uh, rip it down, as even though it was a great music venue, and uh, turn it into a piece of shit. <sighs> anywho anywho uh i think that's it yeah i think that's it so i hope you enjoyed that episode next week uh we continue as as mentioned it's two parts two parts two parts two parts two parts so this will be the second part of the second part of the second murder so we dive into more about this case and we dive into the chief suspect oh things are hotting up now Pfft. So, uh, I think that's me done. Let's hope that recorded otherwise i am I am fluffed. It looks like it's recording. <sighs> might not be um, so let's do that, and then let's go to the pub. Oh pub, brilliant a pint. can't wait. Have yourself a good week, folks. I'm gonna eat myself a chocolate donut. I've got one there. It's got my name on it. It's gonna go into my big, fat face, and then it's gonna get into my belly brilliant have yourself a good week folks stay safe and be good Uh, thank you for supporting the show this is weird now this is where it all goes quiet for me because i have him talked for a couple of hours straight at no one suddenly the boat goes very quiet (sighs) (laughs) lots of love everyone thanks for listening